0: Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Women of the Hour. You'll have to wait a few weeks for season two, but we're assembling early for a very particular cause. This and our whole upcoming season owe a big fat thank you to our friends at MailChimp. They're making the whole damn thing possible. One thing I've struggled to do during this election season, sit down, breathe, and just listen. Let's be real. It's not easy for me to do that even when there isn't an election whirling all around us. But it's made far easier by audible.com. Whether I'm listening to my friend and Women of the Hour contributor, Ashley Ford's series of author interviews, authored, or trying to zen out to some Thich Nhat hans, Peace is Every Step, Audible is helping me expand rather than expend. And for 30 days, Audible is offering a free trial membership if you go to audible.com slash Lena. Who the fuck is Lena?
1: Hi there. I'm Sarah Sophie Flicker, artist and activist, and I'm joining Lena today for this election emergency episode.
0: Look, it's a truth universally acknowledged that it's exhausting to hear men talking about women's experiences. It's been exhausting since cave people times, but during this election cycle, it hit a critical mass. It's
1: exhausting to be talked over, interrupted, gaslit, and silenced. And there is no woman, no matter her level of success, who doesn't know just what that feels like.
0: Recently, a friend told me a story about a work setback and ended with the words, I realized after everything, at the end of the day, I'm still just a girl. I have never had more of a desire to rage and to rebel. The words in my head, yes, at the end of the day, you're still a girl. And the strength of that makes you a boss, a leader, and a fucking baller to the 10th degree, and maybe the fucking president. But it's hard not to
1: internalize cultural stigma. If you're not a cis white male, there are flashy neon signs everywhere telling you your lived experience doesn't merit the label of necessary or even human.
0: And as we stand on the brink of electing our first female president, misogyny is as pernicious as ever and it's making us feel nuts. It's even worse when it's masked by good intentions.
1: The last few weeks have been especially egregious as we listen to male pundits explain what women across all intersections should be thinking, feeling and doing thanks but no thanks
0: so we've called an emergency meeting like we're at all girls camp and there's been a bunk underwear raid by the boys across the lake and we've done it in the form of a podcast I'm Lena Dunham, and this, my friends, is Nasty Women of the Hour, Election Emergency Edition. Something for you to listen to on your way to the polls on November 8th, but not while taking a selfie with your ballot, because remember, that's proven to be a felony in many states.
1: Right now, it seems especially critical to give women a space to talk about this election. The racism, the xenophobia, the misogyny, the hate. Have all been exposed like worms when we turned over the mossy rock that was this presidential race.
0: Much like HPV in a millennial, it's something America convinced itself it was rid of, told everyone else it was rid of, and spread all over the damn campus. I texted
1: Lena in a rage. Every talk show, every podcast, every conversation in my home was still monopolized by men, good men men who consider themselves feminists and allies, but men who still felt entitled to the floor. So this is our moment, damn it. The floor is ours for this frozen instant in time.
0: You hear that, nasty women? Over the next hour, you'll hear from a trauma expert, a comedy writer, a mother of the movement, and a lot of very irritated dames. We even play you a soulful song to remind you that you're not alone.
1: Not for one second
0: protocol here at women of the hour hq whenever there's a crisis is to assemble a room full of smart capable women to break down the issues and hash some shit the fuck out i'd like you to meet our election emergency roundtable moderated by fusion networks collier myerson you'll hear from them throughout this episode since it's the radio you can't see how stylish and appealing all these women are but i think it comes through
2: I'm Collier Meyerson, and I'm sitting here with five incredible women
3: who you will hear from right now. My name is Rebecca Traister, and I'm a writer at New York Magazine who writes a lot about women in politics, a lot about Hillary Clinton, and I just published a book called All the Single Ladies.
4: I'm Michaela Angela Davis. I'm
5: an image activist, and I tell black girl stories. I'm Sarah Jones. I'm a playwright and performer. I am doing a one-woman show called Sell By Date. I'm Sarah
1: Sophie Flicker. I make progressive media content with Art Not War. I'm a mom and I'm an
6: aerialist. My name is Linda Sarso. I'm a Palestinian Muslim American racial justice activist and I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York.
2: When was, as a woman, as a Muslim, as a black person, as a feminist, when was the first time you felt offended by Donald Trump? And I'll start with Linda
6: I've been offended by Donald Trump since I became a conscious person. That was a pretty long time ago, maybe as a teenager. I mean, I was pretty shocked that other people were shocked at even hearing tapes like that. I mean, he has been making money off the objectification of women for a long time, his pageantries. I mean, we don't—I was pretty shocked that people— waited till he objectified a white woman for him to say something, because I'll tell you this much, if it was a black woman or a woman of color, I don't think that we would have been as outraged, just like people weren't as outraged when he was talking about banning a whole faith from coming to this country or when he was talking about Mexicans who we are on their land actually, uh, talking about how they're all rapists and, and, and saying some really outrageous things, and we weren't up in arms, and he was still doing well in the polls, and it took him objectifying a white woman, and he shouldn't be objectifying anybody or saying anything nasty to anyone, but I think that really was the straw that broke the camel's back for white politicians, that they imagine their daughters, they imagine their wives, they imagine their mothers. And it takes that for them to finally say misogyny is not acceptable or we won't support a a politician like that.
3: I'm even a little more cynical than that. This is Rebecca Traster. And I don't actually believe that it was all about them suddenly being able to imagine this being directed at their relatives, I think it's that he was beginning to fall in the polls. The polls had started shifting after the first debate, and it seemed like he was headed toward a big loss. And I think there were a lot of Republicans who very cynically and practically and strategically wanted to jump off the Trump train. Now, it turns out that didn't work out well for them. They jumped right back on. But even in their disavowals where they say, as Linda said, oh, now I can imagine my daughter my wife as as a father. They're still reflecting the same attitude toward women, which is that they are only there as offshoots of men. This
4: is the first time I've seen you, Rebecca, since you wrote the piece in the cut and that you were on Bill Maher. And I just want to thank you as a white woman, making the whiteness important because people of color have... You know, Donald Trump has been a beast to me since Central Park Five. (laughs) I've been in New York, and it was the same thing. It was a white damsel with black boys
2: wilding in the park. Yeah. The Central Park Five case was about a group of Latino and, and black. Boys. Boys. Um, Who were accused of raping a white woman jogger in Central Park. And he took out a full-page ad
4: in the New York Times and got on the radio. And so all of us were horrified. And the fact that, you know, that we have to keep kind of, remember the Central Park Five? Remember the Central Park? In this, it was this white pussy that got everybody up in arms. And again, I want to thank you because... Every black woman in me is tired. Mm -hmm. We need everyone to say, look, y'all, this is crazy.
0: Look, it is crazy. And speaking as the owner of a white pussy that gets people up in arms for sordid reasons, I'm happy to say it. And here to discuss with me how crazy it all truly is, I have my dear friend Janet Mock. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Redefining Realness, and a true Destiny's Child aficionado.
7: Nasty, trashy, sleazy, <laughs> classless. Do you know that song? That's yes. Destiny Show, Nasty
0: Girl. Of course. <laughs> Except wasn't Nasty Girl. Like, it wasn't a battle No, it cry. was, it was, it was slut slut shaming. shaming. They Completely. were not there to like that. Nasty, a battle put cry. your clothes on. I told you. Nasty, don't put
7: your clothes on. <laughs> I told you, to walk don't walk around the house.
0: I told you, don't walk around your house without your clothes, clothes on. It. <laughs> so, this election season has been. Bazonkers. You've spent some of it blissfully hidden in a women's writing retreat.
7: Thank the heavens.
0: You've just publicly endorsed Hillary Clinton for the first time. I mean, it wasn't like you were immediately on board with either her or Bernie Sanders' campaigns. And mm-hmm. for, shockingly enough, you weren't behind Trump either.
7: Well, yeah, I think that was a given. That was like a no-brainer for me. <laughs> there was just no, there was no, there was nothing he could say to me, period. Yeah. Um. But there was, for me, it was like, who's explicitly talking to me? And that's what I kept on telling myself, who's explicitly talking to me in terms of my transness, my blackness, and my womanness? And so for me, I felt Hillary Clinton was the one person that felt that there was, I don't I don't say that all of her things are intersectional yet. I don't think that she's talking to a black trans woman, but yeah. I feel like she's talking to my identities in some way. And I think that that's where a lot of the struggle for me came out. But when I think about all of the things that are being said, I'm not surprised by any of them, um, specifically... On Trump's side, hearing him speak about women in the way that he's speaking about women, but also being even outraged before that, um, his Islamophobia, his racism—period. Um, those things alarmed me very early on, and I just—I what I, I just was in a state of disbelief.
0: And it really did take him talking about grabbing a white woman's pussy for this entire thing to fall. And I thought about that day because I was so pissed and triggered and horrified by that audio and so to realize the limits of my own perspective and go the minute that I got so mad was when he talked about you know grabbing the vagina of a professional white woman in a suit like that forces me to examine my own shit because I'm you know you have to realize like maybe you're not walking the walk as much as you think you are if that's the moment where you go like well everybody let's get get it together
7: Well, yeah, and I think it also speaks to the siloing of identity politics in this way that says that I'm going to advocate for women because I'm a woman. I'm going to advocate for folk of color or black people because I'm black, right? I'm going to advocate for LGBT people or disabled people and not really realizing and having a politic and a movement that is working in coalition across all of those differences and knowing that a lot of people like myself are across all of those differences, right? So my politic, I feel as if at, at times when I should be having more people fighting for me and my people or people who have experiences like me, I have less people because it's easier to, to focus a politic on single identity lives rather than having an intersectional approach that centers those who are disabled, undocumented, incarcerated, you know, black, um, trans, queer folk, right? Like that's like the ultimate person that we should be fighting for in this sense we're centering in our politic. But instead, we just siphon off people's identities in this way that doesn't allow us to have deeper conversations around our policies, around our actions and our movements.
0: Well, that division of identities you're talking about really speaks to my last question, which is, you know, you're a black trans woman. That's a number of different identities to hold. And probably you feel at your strongest when they are all when people are addressing you as all three of those things at the same time, I would imagine. Yes. What was the significance for you of Barack Obama being elected, and what would the significance be for you of having a female president?
7: You mean Michelle Obama as president? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, Michelle was running. a all another thing. Um... For me, I think seeing in my own lifetime, seeing that in my entire adulthood um, that I have had a hand in electing the first black president and the first female president, I just feel as if that hopefully, you know, by the time I'm like 70 years old, still dipping in and doing it, that there's going to be some like black trans woman who's going to be in some kind of high elected office. Like that's the goal, right? To know that these things oftentimes progress in terms of representational politics, like that it happens in baby steps and that it... It meets the culture where it's at at that particular time. And so I'm just overjoyed that I can have a hand in my own lifetime to have elected these people.
0: I'm going to make a guess that you're going to be invited to the White House several times over the next eight years.
7: That's because of you, Lena. (laughs) It's
0: not because of me. It's because I'm going because of you. I love you, Janet. I love you, Lena. Thank you for being part of our emergency episode. (laughs)
7: That's supposed to be a siren, but I don't know.
0: That was the unbeatable Janet Mock. As Janet notes, it's an amazing time in American history. We've come so far, but like some insane toxic glacier, for every inch of progress we make, our country seems to regress into violent backwards rhetoric. Let's join Collier and our panel again to discuss further.
2: I think that in some ways the rise of Trumpism feels not so much like a death knell to me. It's it's more like the beginning of something, right? Mm-hmm. This whole thing looks like a last-ditch effort for white men to hold on to their power. And I was just thinking, like, do you think that this peak misogyny could actually mean the beginning of the end of it? The beginning of the, the end of it. Beginning, beginning. Not like, oh, we're Hillary Clinton is president and now we, we we done with misogyny. Could our reaction to Trump be a mobilizing force to— Fucking the patriarchy. Mm.
3: Yeah. Okay. So this is Rebecca Tracer again. So I think it's going to get worse. I don't think it's just, and I I think it's really important that we emphasize that misogyny is so deeply linked with the racism and the xenophobia. (laughs) And one, I think the beginning of the end was the 2008 election. Mm. Part of what happened in 2008 is we had this historic election with a historic coalition, but we also had a primary that pitted. Mm-hmm. the black man against the white woman. And it was a comfortable way for a wh- for white male power to exist, in which the people on the margins get pitted against each other. The thing that is happening now is that you have Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton working together. And this is the real panic mode mm-hmm. in the United States, mm-hmm. when actually you're not pitting those on the margins against each other, mm-hmm. when they all seem to be working together and that they could have the power. And it seems quite likely. This is going to cause a freak out. This is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a horrible period of years is my culturally and socially. Also years in which we may see I'm optimist. I'm an optimist mm-hmm. too in which we may see big steps forward, but there's just going to be painful, I worry, vi- very you, violent further pushback. I think it's Michaela Angela Davis. I think that it is time
4: for pain particularly on the other side of the civil rights equation, meaning it's time for white folks to really contend with their history. I think I think it is horrifying that we have seen it's almost been 5 years since Trayvon Martin was murdered. Since then we have been consuming relentless images of black death and violence and brutality. However, you go to the Trump rallies, and they are wearing T-shirts that say, fuck Muslims. They are chanting on mass, build a wall, kill them all. Mm-hmm. They're calling Hillary a cunt, a whore. Mm-hmm. They're calling our president a nigger. And we don't see that on, on CNN or MSNBC in a constant loop. We are not made to look at... Mm where white folks have not dealt with their history mm-hmm. for 50 consecutive years. We're about to hit the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement, as we know it. For 50 years, people of color have been showing America how to work towards justice. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any white liberals, really on mass, going down and dealing with those hateful people at those those are white power rallies mm-hmm. called a Trump rally. And I, that mm-hmm. it's like Trump is a white problem. Mm-hmm.
8: Like deal right, with right. your shit. Right. Deal with right. your history. Get your, your, come
4: get your boy. And that's I'm like where uh, where's all the passion from those you know, from the um, Bernie Sanders folks. Mm-hmm. Take that passion, go down, and and rip the t-shirts off those people that are saying, fuck Muslims. Like, do something! I know I you y'all can't, can't,
2: yeah. can't see us out there listening, but we're all shaking our heads. just yeah. like, okay, that's the
4: uncomfortable part. Yes, like, can right. I, I want to say,
5: uh, and I am so there, I remember hearing, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm-hmm. But it is long, and We may not live (laughs) to see the moment when, you know, for me, it's so powerful that, you know, we have these Trump rallies that you're talking about. It's grief. And people, Mm. I know sometimes people will say, Sarah, you're too soft on. What do you mean Mm. you have compassion for any of these people? These people have been disenfranchised. They have bought into the lies that have had white working class folks voting against their interest for Mm -hmm. decades. They've been buying into this white supremacist nonsense. And now they're looking around and their towns are deindustrialized. There are no jobs for them. Their farms are subsidized and they know it's all funky and weird. And (laughs) I'm serious. Like, For me, this is so about economic interest. And this has been centuries that, you know, slave owners back in the 17th century understood, divide your indentured servants from your slaves and make sure they don't understand that they have interest together in protecting themselves against exploitative forces of their bosses. So Mm -hmm. for me, this is huge. It's going to take some time. And the only
6: way out is through. And I just wanted to um, this is Linda Sarsour. Um, My concern is the post, you know, Donald Trump is getting defeated. Like he's not going to see the bathroom of the White House. Like, I already know that. <laughs> I'm right? that's, just, that's just what it's going to be. But what I'm worried about, it's gonna, what's going to happen to us is what happened to us in 2008. I was the all, oh, yes, we can. I was all, I cried, you know, mm-hmm. when Barack Obama was inaugurated. But then the progressive left kind of sat home for a couple of yeah. years. Yes. And we allowed yes. pr- Barack yes. Obama to be influenced by those that we voted him in to work against. I hope that people, the same people who are outraged over Donald Trump, are gonna wake up on November 9th and y'all better be working Stay harder woke. than you yes. did mm-hmm. during the elections. Like, mm-hmm. I want people to hold her accountable too. Mm-hmm. I want her people to be there on January 21st being like, no, we're not letting you know, you you cool. Like, that's great. You're the first woman president. We got another thing in the history books, but she needs to be held accountable. She yeah. has, yeah. Um, and Absolutely. I'm not saying that because she's a woman. I'd say that about anybody. I'd yeah, say that right. about Donald Trump too mm-hmm. if he, God forbid, some crazy shit happened and he became <laughs> the next president of the United States. But I want people to understand that this has been an issue always right. and, yes, and, right. and when yes. we, you know we get outrage oh ban the muslims or we got to register the muslims in database and people say oh that sounds like nazi germany not on mm-hmm. our watch i'm like that already happened in right. 2003 yeah. we registered right. 808 muslim mm-hmm. and no one said anything mm-hmm. then right. so and 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 we mm-hmm. always say you know you know, not my America. I'm like, what America are you talking oh, you about? Talk about? We did Japanese internment camps. We did segregation. Mm-hmm. We're doing mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. We did slavery. We did we did genocide of indigenous people. And people mm-hmm. are always saying, "This is not my America." I'm like, actually, it, yes, is. it is. Yes, it is. Like That that's the hard conversation mm-hmm. I want to have. And when you say this, you know, when you use that type of language, people say, "Oh, you don't like it? Go back to your country. Right. Like, well, you mm-hmm. live in a democracy. Go back to Saudi Arabia." And I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm more patriotic than you are because I want my country to exactly. actually be the greatest that's nation. I'm her. the one trying to make my country great. Not again. <laughs> I'm trying to. Make Make it great because great. it ain't yeah. great. Yeah, no. yeah. Great yeah. I mean, that, that's the
1: patriotic work we have mm-hmm. to do. And, I, you know, I think somehow we all got a little confused about elections at some point. I mean, this is this is the transactional moment. Right. We just need to go mm-hmm. in there and get the job done. And then the transformation begins on the 9th. And what I'm excited and curious and looking towards is what does that look like?
0: Sarah Sophie asked a great question there. What will America look like on November 9th? Writer Liz Watson peered into her crystal ball and got an insider's peek at three of Washington's nastiest women as they prepare DC for America's first female president. Let's hope they put out nice soaps.
8: On the third floor of the Supreme Court, Elena Kagan was laughing with Chief Justice John Roberts. I guess that's what they call a Ted Booze cruise. He grinned.
3: You crack me up, John, you really do.
8: The pair paused in front of the stairs.
7: I heard there's pie in the cafeteria. Yin?
8: Elena shook her head. I've
3: got some business to attend to up here.
8: John was already taking the stairs two at a time, hoping to beat Anthony Kennedy to the final slice of French silk. Hairpinning around the final corner, he turned up and shouted to Elena, yet again, Ted Booze Cruise!"
3: Ha! Classic!
8: Elena's laughter rang out until she was sure John was out of earshot. Then she was silent. The best part of her day was when she could stop pretending to laugh at his jokes which he always repeated at least seven times until he was sure she really got them, you know? Elena trotted down the hallway with surprising speed. The Washington Post might call her style dumpy, but that showed what the fuck they knew because, man, did her sensible stacked heels make good time. She paused in front of a marble bust of Ida B. Wells and scanned the hallway. Confident she was alone, Elena slid a Sacagawea gold dollar into a small groove behind Ida's ear. The bust swung back, revealing a narrow, winding staircase. A scent of lavender wafted into the hall, as did the strains of Carol King's tapestry. Elena hurried down the stairs, which were covered in Berber carpet the saleswoman had described as women's college in color. As she descended, a gentle recording of Angela Bassett's voice repeated,
9: You are not crazy. Yes, I heard him say that too. It's unbelievable.
8: You are not alone. You are not crazy. Relax, my angel. When Elena reached the bottom, she took a deep breath inside. The music was soft, the scented candles warm and inviting. The latest edition of O! magazine was waiting for her on a credenza that had once belonged to both Dolly Madison and Dolly Parton. A small brass plaque hung by the entrance, reading, Keeping the Scrotum Out of Scotus, a gift from Elizabeth Warren. Elena was finally here at the place Angela Merkel once called the real Velvet Underground. She was at the secret Supreme Court women's bunker. She was home. The bunker was founded in 1981 by Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female court appointee. Having requested funds for a women's bathroom, which nobody had even bothered to build before, she quickly realized that the court's men were both ignorant and terrified of the needs of women. I need money for a tampon machine, she'd say and watched Chief Justice Warren Burger's face contort in discomfort.
7: Here's a blank check.
8: He'd groan.
7: Just don't use that word again.
8: What first began as a quiet room to relax and listen to Patsy Klein blossomed into a cathedral of cashmere blankets, mugs of tea, and pillows for screaming into about how Roe v. Wade was up on the table again for the 450th time. Are you fucking kidding me? He said that a woman's body will terminate a pregnancy caused by rape? He said what? He said what? He said what? The screaming pillows needed replacing every few weeks. Trading her judge's robes for a custom Saint-Laurent smoking jacket with a monogrammed pocket, Elena called out, Yoo-hoo! Call me a doctor,
3: because here's your EKG.
8: Sonia Sotomayor looked up from her fainting couch. You're just in time! I'm putting the finishing touches on her welcome card. A small Wellesley pennant hung at the bedside. Framed photos of Chelsea and her grandchildren adorned the walls, although Bill was notably absent. A few choice pieces from the Antiques Roadshow showcase, her favorite program, were artfully scattered throughout the room. HRC monograms adorned every towel, every highball glass, every Brookstone personal massager. They were ready. Elena paused as she watched Sonia and Ruth at work. A shadow crossed her face. Sonia looked up. Elena? Is something wrong? Elena
3: frowned. Gals, do you think it's ethical of us, as Supreme Court justices, to be making these kinds of special allowances for the president? I know this is a space for women, and I really want her to join us when we do fun stuff like get our colors done or try to channel the spirit of Ann Richards, but she'll be the president first, and a woman second. Law is the great passion in my life. I'd hate to be accused of having my impartiality compromised in some way.
8: Ruth Bader Ginsburg slowly turned. That sounds to me like a problem for somebody who gives a fuck, she said. Sonia sighed. Elena knew Sonia felt Ruth was leaning too heavily into her notorious RBG persona lately. The memes were one thing, the custom snapbacks another. But once you were texting schoolboy Q from the bench, something needed to change. Sonia set down her pen. What I would say is that if this election cycle has proven anything, it's that feminism is a nonpartisan issue. We've seen how fragile progress really is. If anything, making unity a priority which transcends political agendas is the most vital work that we, as public servants, can be doing at this time. Ruth Bader Ginsburg nodded solemnly.
0: Yes. Yes, bitch. Correct. That's why we've got Ivanka's Corner all set.
8: All three threw a quick glance to the roped-off sofa in the corner with its reserved-for-IT-when-she-is-ready placard. They turned away. There was a slight chill in the air. Elena touched Sonia's hand. We're doing the right thing, aren't we? What if she doesn't win? Sonia and Ruth paused, then laughed <laughs> and laughed. <laughs> Elena soon joined in, breezy, relieved laughter. <laughs> Come Come on, ladies," said Ruth.
0: How about some Harney and Sons tea, a nice foot bath, and then we go throw a brick through the sunroof of James Comey's car. And then can we watch Great British Bake Off?
8: Asked Elena. And then we can watch Great British Bake Off, replied Sonia, throwing a thumb through the belt loop of her good American jeans. Because even a Supreme Court justice can see when Khloe Kardashian has cracked the coat on stretched denim.
3: Let's say that Hillary's first act as president needs to be making a
0: Great American Bake Off,
8: said Elena. Ruth Bader Ginsburg nodded once more.
0: Yes, bitch. Yes. Correct.
1: That piece was written by Liz Watson. You just heard the voices of Liz Watson, Max Linsky, Jasmine Hughes, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Henry Malofsky.
0: We're going to take a short break so I can tell you about a new partnership we have with Audible.com. Anyone who knows me knows that books are my passion. To me, carrying around 15 books counts as exercise. But Audible is a different way of consuming books. One I learned to love when I narrated my own audiobook and came to view it as an art form. Yes, audiobooks even have directors, just like movies, minus the need to cover your zits. I'm thrilled Audible is helping us bring you Women of the Hour this season. And now Women of the Hour will be bringing you the Audible Book Club. This week, the focus is on politics, of course. A few of the audible titles we think you should check out to make sense of this particular cultural moment. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, a searing look at the deeply embedded causes and effects of racism in America's justice system. American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld, a witty and deeply personal look at the life of a fictitious first lady and ultimately what is expected of a good American woman. All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traister reminds us that single women are a fast-growing contingent of the American population, shifting expectations of traditional femininity and storming the workforce. This is just one of the many reasons women's rights, from wage equality to reproductive justice, must be defended so fiercely in this election. Delve into these and do it for free for 30 days at audible.com Lena. She sounds like a bitch. It's fun to laugh and also deeply necessary, but there's a darker side to all this racist rhetoric and quote-unquote locker room talk. For a white person, Trump's attacks on immigrants and Muslims may be distasteful, but we don't and can't understand the ways it brings back lived experiences for people who have endured direct attacks at school or in their neighborhoods. In a similar vein, what may strike some as just gross, words like moved on her like a bitch." are terrifying reminders to sexual assault survivors of just what it feels like to have your body invaded and your humanity disregarded.
1: My friend Shishi Rose is an activist and writer. She and I have been speaking a lot about the sexually toxic energy of this election. Here are some of her thoughts
10: on that now. This is Shishi Rose, and as a woman of color, this election season has been brutal. From the overall sexism and racism that has been exhibited by Donald Trump and his supporters, to the fear that I have for what this all means for women of color. Although I'm sure a huge women's liberation movement will span out of Hillary becoming the first female president, it worries me what this may mean for women of color, because historically a white woman leading or being the face of a women's movement doesn't always mean liberation for women of color as well. I'm afraid that as usual women of color may fall through the cracks when what we need most is a seat at the table. And as a black woman, I have people hating on me for being black, and for being a woman. Nowhere feels safe. Sexism has been given a voice and a face in Donald Trump. It's finally gotten more people talking, yet daily the effort it takes just to get to work or to simply exist is infuriating. In a span of two days, I've had men catcall me, tell me to smile, flash their dicks at me on the street, grope me on the subway, and arguing with me when I spoke about a grown man hitting on a 10-year-old girl. It's a very scary time for women. And not nearly enough people are talking about the intersections of sexism and race. I think because this is all so in everyone's face, some men are taking it upon themselves to kind of rebel against the narrative that is currently happening. Attempting to try to normalize the misogyny, men need to do better. But more importantly, we need to teach boys to be better. Who we elect as a country sends a strong message to the young boys growing up right now. It affects everything. So men, instead of defending wrong behaviors, you need to be standing with us and fighting for us. And you need to be just as exhausted with this election as we are. Yet you need to also be ready to fight sexism and be a voice daily, just like we are. All men may not perpetuate the problem, but all men can stand up and fight against it.
0: Once again, that was Shishi Rose. Thanks, Shishi. Shishi's humor and brilliance can be found at shishirose.com. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Sue Grand, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma and the issue of re-traumatization. Full disclosure, Sue is the woman who helped me when my sexual assault story was picked at and questioned by the right-wing media and gave me the tools to move on from what felt like a fresh new assault. I'm forever indebted to her and hope you'll find her wisdom as helpful as I have. And please remember... There's nothing weak or pathetic about being scared and hurt by what you see and hear in the news. This is a tough time, and self-care is paramount.
11: One of the things that often happens with trauma is that you have kind of flooding emotions at the time that something happens, and that these floods of emotion come back whenever something happens now that reminds you of that event earlier. We're speaking particularly around sexual abuse and and women. What happens after you've had a significant trauma is that women are trained to be silent, to say nothing, to not mention it, and to expect a certain amount of sexual Uh, transgression on their bodies as kind of normative part of life and they're not supposed to feel very much about it. So usually what they do is they dissociate it, they numb themselves, and they've got an internal struggle going on that they're trying to manage and shut down. The problem with triggers is often people don't even know what triggered them. They'll be on the subway and suddenly be having a panic attack and don't know why. They have no idea what happened. Triggers can be extremely subtle, particularly because when you endure the trauma, there's a lot of dissociation at the time. So memory, you know that it happened, but the full experience of it is something you're trying to block. So you can't necessarily identify your trigger points when they arise. What happens, it goes straight into your sort of mind-body system, and you get flooded, and you have all nightmares, panic attacks, depression, body states that are disturbing, phobic reactions to people, startle reactions, all kinds of things. So re-traumatization is a period of time in which either there are so many triggers, the triggers are inescapable, they feel like they are so impinging that You aren't just momentarily having a reliving experience of the original trauma, but you're kind of pervasively affected. It doesn't mean that there aren't areas of your life in which you're doing just fine. You go to work, no problem. But it can mean that, whereas, let's say you were able to sleep with your boyfriend, suddenly you can't. You can't get on the subway all of a sudden, whereas you could before, but now when it's really crowded with bodies crushing up against you, you can't. And that's what people mean by re-traumatization. I would say the entire 2016 election cycle would have done that, although women have different moments. The general way of speaking about women as pigs, as dogs, the pervasive sexual objectification and vulgarity, The bragging of a presidential candidate about the size of his penis, the need of a man's overriding ego to be propped up by the sexual objectification and befoulement of women has been pervasive. Then, of course, we have the tape, and the tape has really awakened not only re-traumatization but an opening of conversation that's very productive. It's not just that women all over the country heard him doing this. What was extraordinary is that a lot of news commentators immediately labeled him as bragging about sexual assault. They were very clear that these were things he had done, not just vulgar foul speech. And that is a double-edged thing. It's a trigger point as well. The other thing that's, of course, re-traumatizing is this speech around, well, if it really happened, why didn't they come forward a long time ago? And that's re-traumatizing to women because rape culture doesn't seem to grasp that if a woman comes forward with a very powerful, vindictive, sadistic and moneyed offender, she not only has to relive what he did to her then, but in addition to what he did to her then, She has to expose herself to him smearing her, suing her, threatening her, and taking over her life now. So, this attitude, if it's real, why didn't they come forward before? Speaks to exactly how rape culture works. And that these women can come forward now for several reasons. One is he has confessed on tape, he has exposed himself. So, that has returned them to their incidents. It has confirmed for them publicly that they know he did this and he did it to many women because he's just talking about it as if he does it whenever he wants. So there's an enormous silver lining that at the same time it's ramped up and exposed that it is being resisted and becoming more taboo and more unacceptable. The bedrock of self-care in the aftermath of trauma is coming to listen to yourself. What feels good and what doesn't feel good. What upsets you and what doesn't upset you and how much you decide you want to open the door to coping with painful feelings and processing in your own way. The number one thing with every trauma survivor is to learn to listen to yourself to respect that at the time you couldn't say no, but now you can. Whatever you need to do, you and you know, everybody needs to decide, do you watch these debates, do you not watch these debates? Does it feel better to listen to Michelle Obama? I would think so. It's really about listening to yourself, but being able to take in, also in this election cycle, the number of fabulous, strong, clear women we now have coming into power. If you're a survivor and you've been re-traumatized, you can fixate on Donald Trump's denial that he ever did anything and go crazy because the culture denies this. What will help much more is to notice that he confessed and to feel validated.
0: No good for me. That was the wise and loving Dr. Sue Grand, and the song you just heard was Brutally by Suki Waterhouse, available now on iTunes and Spotify. As Dr. Grand notes, there's sometimes nothing more soothing than the solidarity of other women. So let's return to our super panel as they discuss their experiences as women watching a woman run for the highest office in the land.
2: Uh, Lena and I are wonderful friends, and, and she's always known that I'm less than jazzed about Hillary Clinton. But there have been a few moments, namely the debates, where HRC is standing up there composed as fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next to this totally out of control, totally unhinged mess, yo, mm-hmm. mess. Mm-hmm. And I've been like, oh, damn. Mm-hmm. Like, that's poise, That's presidential. That is a woman who it's knows badass. what time it is. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if y'all have had that moment, like a similar moment to mine, where you're just like, Oh, damn, that is a woman that I am very proud of. Yeah.
5: You know what? Um, It's Sarah Jones. I want to just quickly say one of the things about for me talking about misogyny is there is such a thing as internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. And I really want to be clear that Margaret Thatcher was a woman. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are such things as, you know, women who are in positions of power, who do not have women's interests in, in mind or in, at heart. And just as there can be a Justice Thomas, you know, all my skin folk ain't my kin folk. Mm-hmm, right. You know, all my ovary folk ain't necessarily my <laughs> so I don't know. But
11: ovary far, folk.
5: As far as I can tell, Hillary, had, you know, this is the woman who in the 90s wanted, you know, health care for, I mean, like she really did have a progressive... Understanding of certain values, even when the word progressive was nowhere until Bernie Sanders brought it into the mainstream, as far as I could tell. I believe that there's an opportunity for us to push from whatever we want to call it, the left or whatever, to get people to the point where they are really in alignment with what they say, and it doesn't have to be Obama with no illusions or Hillary with no illusions. Maybe we can actually say Hillary with, you know, the push from our um, demand. Like, can we really say, look, we love you. That's why we're going to demand of you that you step up.
4: Well, you know, I I also was kind of, um, I was reluctant to be out about being for (laughs) Hillary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To come out. Um, Mm -hmm. For, for a myriad of reasons. But what, what, how I got in is there are some dope young women of color with her. And so I said, you know what, I want to talk to all these black girls and I want to know why are you with her? When I talked to Sabrina Fulton and learned about all the mothers of the movement. Were with Hillary, so my position was I'm with y'all. Mm. I'm with sisters all the time. That's I say that once a week on Twitter. I'm here for Black women, so if all these Black women are here for Hillary, so I'm here for you. I don't use the hashtag. I'm with her either. I use she slays, because um, that's just more fun. <laughs> but, um, but 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 so I really. But then when when we when I saw what a Trump presidency would look like, that poor people, that people on the margins will perish under him. Mm -hmm. Like, that's when it got critical. Okay, I'm going to be out. I'm going to go to Twitter. I'm going to go to rallies. I'm like, I'm not just going to be your little Twitter black girlfriend to tell Mm -hmm. you to tell her to wear some lipstick. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, I think um, 2008 or the uh, Obama administration is a cautionary tale. We can't lay back. That's right. I'm actually leaning in and are you going to bring those black women into the White House for you or are they just going to bring energy and litness because the black girls have made this campaign
6: lit yes. but are they are they going to have a place in the White House they have to but also for Hillary like even when she's the most composed when she sounds the most articulate she still says things that just outrage me too like when she says like Muslim like there has never been a time where she said that something nice about Muslim Americans except that we are on the front lines of fighting terrorism like oh we they are our eyes and ears like she also has taken away the human humanity of Mm -hmm. my community, also our agency as people who are part of environmental justice movement, immigrant rights movement, people who are entrepreneurs, business owners, feminists, doctors, you know, taxi cab drivers. Like, we help make this country work. And she keeps boiling us down to these, like, you know, we're some soldiers. Spies. spies. And (laughs) I'm just like, no, Hillary, like, don't do that. So I'm hoping that (laughs) the black girls, many of whom, by the way who are now in the in the Hillary camp are we're also with us in the mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders <laughs> yes. campaign. That's mm-hmm. right. There's been a lot of like weird like on both sides of the aisle for mm-hmm. me but like we got to be with her but I want to be with her on January 21st and I hope she wants to be with us. Thanks yes. back yes. to yes. you said yes. like I hope she's not going to drop the people who made her campaign lit because she
0: got what she wanted or her people got what they wanted. I think I want to live inside that panel. Is that possible? Like how high is the rent? One group, which Michaela just mentioned, as part of the Hillary Clinton campaign, is the Mothers of the Movement, a group of women whose unarmed Black children have been killed by law enforcement or gun violence. If our country was fair, civil, or just, this group would never have to exist. They are a sisterhood forged by pain, tragedy, and outrage. But they've managed to take the unimaginable and find a seed of hope within their grief. Speaking with me today about her experiences on the road with Hillary Clinton is Geneva Reed Veal whose daughter, Sandra Bland, died under police custody in 2015. We are lucky enough to be here with Geneva Reed Veal, activist, minister, mother of Sandra Bland, and mother of the movement. And you have been on the road with Hillary Clinton for how long now?
9: Uh, Since February. Wow. Yes.
0: What inspired you to take your words and put them behind a specific candidate?
9: Oh, my goodness. Uh, When Secretary Clinton came to Chicago, she actually, uh, prior to coming to Chicago, had been trying to connect with my family. Uh, The campaign was calling my attorney and they were saying, you know, we we really would like to sit down with Miss Reedville. We want to see, you know, what we can help her with, what we can do. Come on. This is Hillary Clinton. Okay? And so I was in my shut up, sit down stage, and um, I was not able to receive any of those calls at that time. I, and I started thinking about it, and I said, wait a minute, wait. This is an opportunity to have a huge, huge voice across this country. You know, at that time, there was no talk about endorsing her, traveling with her, none of that. I just knew had we had a connection, oh, the whole world would know it. I knew that. So it's okay. So we have this, this, this meeting at Sweet Maple Restaurant in Chicago, 12 moms, no media, no nothing. And so when you talk about being able to sit at a table with the secretary, who is now presidential nominee, and she says to you, ladies, and she knew all of us by name, she knew every child's case, she knew where every child's case was. Um, man. And, and she said, I, I know what the media has said about your kid, but you tell me what you want me to know about your baby. And she allowed us each individually to go around, talk about our kid, talk about what we wanted to see happen, what our, our aspiration was uh, as far as this criminal justice system goes. Now, she was supposed to be there a half hour. She ended up being there two hours, a little over two hours. And we knew that she walked in there as secretary, former first lady, all of that. But she walked out of there as a grandmother and a mother. We felt that from her. So afterwards, no endorsement, none of that. I'm just like, eh. you know, I'm watching her. And then I started to go looking at her policies and looking at what she was planning to implement. And I said, okay, now, hmm. then follow-up letters came just checking in with you today, the no indictment came, and I got a letter. And that letter said, you know, I can only imagine what you must be feeling at this time. I'm so sorry that there was no indictment. And that warmed the heart of the family, okay? Then we got another uh, around Sandy's birthday. Sandy would have been 29 in February. So we got another follow-up letter saying, you know, I I, I understand that holidays just passed and this would have been your first... Uh, uh, holiday without Sandy, and I'm so sorry. And I'm going. You know what? This lady is all right with me. And so, after the continual follow-up and the just the compassion, and I told my attorney, I said, you know what? I'm going to endorse her. Let 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 let's let them know that we're going to endorse her. And that's what I did. No idea that that would have meant that I would have had the opportunity to travel all across this country to be in the same room with her on several occasions, to be at rallies where she would announce that we were there. And so when you think about somebody who has given you the opportunity to make the death of your child feel like it meant something and to, 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 to say to you, I know your child's life mattered, that is big, that is major. And I tell people she actually endorsed us before we endorsed her.
0: Incredible. And how did the flack, I mean, even in the primaries, Hillary was getting so much negative attention, even from young progressive people who cared about the Black Lives Matter movement, who were endorsing Bernie. How did you feel about the kinds of negative attention that were being sent in Secretary Clinton's direction.
9: Mm. I'll be honest with you. I have always been the type of person because early on in my life, uh, because of some of the things I was involved in or or things that I was involved in that weren't so acceptable to people. I was at the brunt of negative responses. And so how you feel, lady. you, You understand? I do. And so I learned how not to allow that to affect me, and what I learned when hearing all of these things that were coming out about Hillary, I said, wait a minute, I don't know her personal background. I don't know whatever happened back there. I don't care about that. All I do know is that I sat across the table from her, and she cared. That's it. And so I decided to shut all of that out. I just I refused to allow myself to get taken off track of not wanting to help her get into office. That was my desire where she stands on criminal justice. That's major to me where she stands on gun laws. That's major to me where she stands on talking about education and employment. That's major to me. So I couldn't allow the negative that was coming out to affect all of the positive things that I know that have occurred while she's been all of the positions that she's stayed in.
0: Well, despite my desire for you to be president, she seems like a pretty good (laughs) second choice here. That's funny. She is much, much more qualified than I am. I'll tell you that. Well, well, the listeners can't see your hat, so they don't know just how great it is in here. That was the incomparable Geneva Reed Veal, who will be joining us again this upcoming season on Women of the Hour. Let's close out the day by checking in with our panel one last time as they discuss self-care and self-protection, two things that are always important but in this election cycle have become non-negotiable.
2: You're all pretty public women and most of you with social media accounts. I've seen all of you on my parents' TV set because I don't have one. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering how you engage with people who disagree with your politics in this election, be it online or on TV, on the subway. Um, What's your advice for for some self-care and how do you deal with the trolls? This is
5: Sarah Jones again. I can speak from a place of... Being an, uh, I'm a playwright and performer who has to l- l- confront an audience live every mm. night and my audience in New York is often traditional theater goers, you know, older, straight, white. American men and women who I can feel their discomfort at the progressive ideas that are spilling out onto the stage. And I'm having to say to people, this is where I am and you are uncomfortable and I'm willing to find a way to tolerate my discomfort at your discomfort. Mm. If you can get comfortable with the awkwardness of engaging in a in a principled debate, not ad hominem attacks, not you stupid, you know, so-and-so, you're just you know narrow and limited no actually engage with this person this you know farmer who wants to hold on to his gun and really thinks like you know obama was born in kenya that person is undereducated you know people will march to the beat of your drum if they're not given a lot of ways to think critically and so i want to engage that person and say hey really think about this is donald trump really you know the the person who's going to Like, take care of your interests. Like, is it really so scary to think that America is becoming more brown? Maybe you can be an ally of those brown people. Maybe you can actually heal through the transformation of looking at the truth of what's happened in this country and move ahead as, you know, we're all allies and men and women and trans folks deserve to have equal voices in this culture. So I want to engage them. I'm willing to get uncomfortable and I'm willing to not be liked. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sarah, you're (laughs) such a nicer nasty girl than I am. (laughs) It's Michaela Angela Davis. I, like
4: I said earlier, I'm like it's time for white folks to do the work. I, mm-hmm. I'm not ready to. I'm done. Yeah. Like I'm done and not interested in your like tears. Like do the work. That's where I am. But and and I do think that um, radical self care and radical love is critical to to just stand up. And that's why you know I, I've I've heard Linda say this: the Black Lives Matter movement is so full of radical love that it's something. You know, it's a reservoir. But also, I just like to do girly shit, too. Like, I have to go out and look at jumpsuits. <laughs> <laughs> with radical jumpsuits. Welcome. Yeah, and, and this weekend, I, I spoke at the um, Dallas Bella Kinks Natural Hair Show. Yes. And I saw all these beautiful black girls with, like, hair that just look like a, you know, bouquet of, like, beautiful flowers. And that fills me. And I mm-hmm. have to see art. And I have to go to plays. And I have to listen to music. And I have to have good sex. Like, I, you know, and eat good food and rest you know, and have good sex. And, <laughs> like, and we mentioned the good yes, sex. Exactly. Like that, ha- like we have to take care of ourselves in a <laughs> radical revolutionary way and not, and put ourselves first sometimes, like literally put yourself first before even you go to that march or you go to that show. Like, Take care of your damn self. Okay, yeah. Number one, join Michaela and I.
1: We go jumpsuiting together. It's important. <laughs> also on the front of healing, I just think, like, we all have to keep having these conversations. And let's, like, start brainstorming on November night. Like, let's come to my house. Like, let's start having some meetings. And let's, you know, because I do think... You know, because we have been with her, mm-hmm. we now have her ear.
8: Mm-hmm. You hope. We, we hope. hope. We hope. Right. We, we hope. We but hope. I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm an
1: optimist. And and uh, the transformation starts November 9th.
2: Ooh. Wow. Mm. Thank you so much to all of you. Um, this was really, really edifying and fun for me and also gave me all the good vibes.
0: So there you have it. An hour for women. Women for an hour. Soon, we're hoping it's a woman for eight years, but no matter what happens on November 9th, it's a blessing to be reminded that America is full of radical women, united by their differences, who will not rest until we are all standing in our own power. And if it wasn't clear enough from the spirit of this whole episode, the most important thing you can do at this particular moment in time is get out and vote November 8th. Or earlier, if you're in a state that has early voting a lot of these states have one-stop voting where you can both register and vote at the same time go to iwillvote.com to learn more another hearty thank you to audible.com for presenting this special episode if you use your 30-day free trial by going to audible.com slash lena and you like the titles we suggested tweet at me with the hashtag W O T H audible book club to weigh in that's hashtag W O T H audible book club A book club where you're only responsible for your own snack sounds pretty good to me. Nasty Women of the Hour, the election emergency special, was produced by Liz Watson and Barry Finkel in proud partnership with Lenny and Pineapple Street Media. Special thanks once more to our friends at MailChimp and to each and every one of our sweet and stylish listeners. Stay frosty, America.